a dream, but in my humble opinion, few should be allowed through the gateway they imagine leads to paradise, for it rarely provides what the overactive imagination has promised. Arnold Matson, on the other hand, was under no such illusion and spell as he contentedly dunked and contemplated. Oh, excitement was unquestionably throbbing in the well-harnessed ribcage beneath his straining cabalt cardigan, but when a man has been dealt life's snorters as regularly as Arnold, he does not look to the hypothetical horizon for the comforting mirage. He is merely glad that, for the time being at least, that very same hypothesis is simply calmness personified. No surprise, then, when a single woodmouse that has been wintering in the disused chimney-breast of the dormant hostelry is not only spared as it scampers for cover over the hearth's dusty brickwork and scattered kindling, it is also smiled at and waved to by the contented new landlord as it momentarily sidetracks his tranquil infusion and daydream. A smattering of the unwanted surrenders itself to the lime-scaled bathroom sink as the Reverend Colin Wheatsheaf delicately trims both nasal and facial hair, a minor detail, some would say, that he ought to attend to more often. Indeed, since the collapse, not to say disintegration, of his marriage to Martha Wheatsheaf, nay Baines, it gives me no pleasure whatsoever to report that cleanliness and godliness have, in the case of the Reverend Colin Wheatsheaf, packed their separate bags and hopped it. At the risk of venturing towards blasphemy, I would even go so far as to say that if God allowed anyone to come near his right hand with fingernails and body odour such as those possessed by our Colin, the shop steward in charge of hosannas and what have you would pull the big man to one side, demand an emergency meeting, and threaten an almighty angelic walkout. That is not to say that we should laugh and ridicule at the demise of the ripe and high reverend, for he still has much to offer in his present confused and self-neglected state. However, his carbolic and holy deodorant shall, for the foreseeable future, remain superfluous. With lemon-tinted bifocals ready to fend off unwelcome intruders to his bloodshot peepers, and tattered moccasins champing at the bit as they snuggle up to threadbare cotton socks, one black, one navy blue. The Reverend Colin Wheatsheaf double-checks himself in his lopsided hall mirror, begrudgingly accepts what he sees, snatches his day-glow cycling helmet from a bereaved hat-stand, and is gone. Where once a wooden bench, perhaps nestling under overhanging trees, possibly by a duck-pond or horse-trough, conjured up the quintessential picture of an English village green, we are now, dear reader, faced with an equally vivid but more abysmal scenario. Nothing would have given me more pleasure than to report back to base, as it were, that the idyll which we all remember and still occasionally crave is alive and well. Not so, I'm afraid, in the case of Blinkington on the treacle. Don't get me wrong, for I should hate to tamper with the cerebral enthrallment you have fashioned for yourself in order to maintain an interest in these ramblings. Let me make it as clear as Muriel Spurgeon's six o'clock G&T that your first impression of this enchanting village was indisputably correct. Absolutely. It's just that... Oh, I suppose you might as well meet them. Ronnie and Aubrey Bickerstaff are twins. More to the point, they are thirty-year-old twins who should know better. As the spectacularly inoffensive retired librarian Gerald Ashcroft once pointed out to the pair, shortly before he was dispatched to the local infirmary with various cuts and bruises, 
Sitting on your derriere drinking cider all day is not an occupation. Some ten years later, it would seem that Gerald was mistaken in his supposition. And as I witnessed Ronnie and Aubrey once more sprawled on the bench under the naked and slightly embarrassed horse chestnut, I personally see no sign of a hiatus in the brothers' insatiable guzzling quest of their chosen fermentation, although no doubt you will be relieved to hear that Mr. Ashcroft made a full recovery from his horrific assault. I was rather hoping to get an update from Gerald regarding the loathsome duo, but I was met with a firm clear-off when I attempted communication through the letterbox of his cottage some two weeks ago. He doesn't venture out much these days, apparently, while flashbacks of duck ponds, cider bottles and menacing tattoos continue to wreak havoc. I would unflinchingly gamble my late grandmother's surgical stockings on the fact that we are all agreed when it comes to recognising it does indeed take all sorts to make a work.